I think. That's not what we're studying today. That's what we're studying today. No, that's not what we're studying today. This is fun, isn't it? So when I prepared this, I have, I have several messages uh, in, uh, one set of slides, 120 or so, now, if I say start from the current slide, and you say it looks just like the other one, it's just a blue screen, that's okay, it's a different blue screen, trust me on that. And uh, so, uh, if you've got a Bible, uh, open it to Acts 16, and if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew pocket in front of you. We'll take a little bit of a diversion a necessary side trip before we get into the message that I have for you this, uh, this hour. Acts 16 and in uh, verse 9, we'll read a little bit about Paul. Uh, and uh, it starts with, A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God has called us to preach the gospel to them. So putting out the sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, whatever, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there up to Philippi, or Philippi, which is a lead city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer and we sat down and began speaking to the woman, the women who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, there's a response all the way to trusting the Lord and being baptized publicly to demonstrate that. She urged us saying, if you had judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. It happened as we were there going to the place of prayer, place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination, meaning she was uh, demon-possessed, uh, who was met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, Silas 
and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into, into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming the customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or observe, being Romans. The crowd rose up against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had struck them many blows, they threw them into the prison, prison commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house was shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. He figured that if he didn't kill himself, the authorities would kill him for letting them go. But Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with tears, fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and after he had brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. The power of the, power of the gospel into salvation for those that believe, as quoted by Paul in, in Romans, is a very wonderful thing, an important thing, and I love this story in Acts 16.31 and the simple truth, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. I remember when Sue and I were had uh, moved out to Moab, in uh, also known as the area of Chicago, back in the, uh, in the late 90s, and uh, I was working for a nuclear utility out there. Uh, we joined this little church, and... Um, Their philosophy of ministry was a wee bit different from Preston City Bible Church, and will suffice it to say that. And, and uh, although the gospel was straight, uh, it, it was, had things messed around and added to it. And when I, uh, in a conversation at one time, said those simple words of believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, uh, was sort of mocked by the pastor's wife that I would think, so solely that simply simple as that would be enough alone without doing anything different. And it is, and it was, and it always shall be. Um, we are encouraged by our pastor, those of us that are filling in for him in the pulpit, to uh, have a time with the gospel, to not forget the gospel, to bring the gospel out whenever we teach. And uh, although I'm uh, we're going to jump all the way back to Genesis here in, in about 30 seconds, but I wanted to, to have to just share with you that little section which you are so well familiar with and say, keep that in your hearts. You never know when you're going to be in a situation where you can share those words with somebody else and you don't know how they're going to respond 
but God does, and if he puts us in a situation where we can do that, have the ammo ready to go. All right, so where are we today? Last, last week we, uh, we looked at, uh, we're in Genesis chapters 1 through 11, and last week we looked primarily at chap- Genesis 1 and uh, the uh, seven days, the six days of creation and the day of rest. And we're going to continue with that uh, development today. Uh, and I'm calling this the creation of man, the fall of man. And very ambitiously, I've got Genesis 2, 4 through 4, 26. Um, that's a lot of ground to cover. And we'll have to really keep booking. And I'm not known for moving that fast. So let's uh, we put this on the Lord, and uh, and we'll see where we get to today. I will tell you that, and following on what what Loring was talking about first hour about making sure, of uh, uh, a prayer of, it's a fearful prayer that uh, I have when when you stand up and you're talking and saying, in essence, thus saith the Lord. Uh, it's a fearful thing to. You've got to be sure, and how can you be sure? You put the trust in God. You say, God, don't let me say anything that is going to cause someone to stumble or lead somebody astray. Uh, so um, here we go. We're starting in uh, Genesis 2 and verse 4. And uh, reading in the English, this is, this is the account of the heavens on the earth and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord made the earth and heaven. So there are schools of thought, scholars, that will tell you that when we get into this section of Genesis, this is a different story of creation. You have Genesis 1 and up into 2, 3, that is the first story of creation. And then you have this other guy that came along and he wrote the second story of creation. No, 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 it's not that way. So Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 present the big picture of creation. Six days. We talked about them all last week. And uh, Genesis 2, 4 through 25, where we're right now, retells and elaborates on the creation of man. So we, can, we, came to the, we got the creation of man on the sixth day, along with the creation of all the animals, and now we're going to zoom in a little bit, as you would in a lot of literature and a lot of books that you might read. You get the overall, and then you get into the details about certain aspects. And as we go along, they get more and more and more important to the story. So, we can talk without that. I'm just ignoring one of my notes. So now, no shrub of the field was yet on the earth, and no plant of the field yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the earth, but a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. So verses 5 and 6 now are describing conditions before man was created and begins forming the land. It sets the situation up. You have two different kinds of things described. You got shrubs, siak, which is an inedible shrub, a bush or a tree like sagebrush or something like that that you may see, and asev, the, the edible cultivated plants and trees that would bear fruit. And we haven't had any rain yet, uh, but 
that can cover two things. The Lord had not sent rain on the earth yet like he does in the future at, relative to this time to, uh, to flood the whole earth. He hadn't done that yet. And but what we have is a mist rising from the earth and watering the whole surface of the ground. So that's... Love this setup up here. So the pre-flood means the water in the earth. You had subterranean streams of fresh water, natural springs like artesian wells where the water just kind of bubbles up from the ground. You don't need a pump to pump it up. It just comes up. And there was that. So we have that. Then, then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. So you have formed uh, he used its. Loring was talking about this this morning, molding clay and all that stuff. So I'm, I'm molding clay as a potter, working with clay, and he, and he formed the body of man, how in his likeness and image, and he breathed the breath of life, the nashima, uh, into his nostrils, and man became a living being, a nefesh, a living being with a soul. Now, all the creatures that there are air breathers uh, have uh, a nefesh. Um, they have the breath of life, the nashima, but they do not have a soul. We do not believe. And then the Lord planted a garden towards the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Now, in the east, so recall this. All this is information that Moses is penning uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit sometime between the Exodus in 1446 and, and Moses' death in 1406 B.C. And it is information for the children of Israel that had been through the Exodus and survived and 40 years in the wilderness and now they're there getting ready and he is teaching them their history and this is the primeval part of that history. And, and he's saying, okay, and the garden was to the east. So it's to the east of Israel. Over that way. And out of the ground the Lord caused every tree that is pleasing to sight and good for the food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it is divided and became four rivers. So one river flowing out, and in four rivers it becomes, and they go all over the place. And what do we know about those rivers? Okay, the first one, the first one is Pishon, uh, and it flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. Where's that? I don't know. Um, we can't be sure where those two rivers. There's another one is called Gihon, which we'll see in verse 13 when we get there. We don't know where they were. Um, just that somewhere to the east that all four joined together near Eden, wherever that was. And we just know this was east of the land occupied by Israel. Now the third and fourth rivers are the Tigris and the Euphrates, and they give us some idea because we know where those rivers are today if that's the same Tigris 
and Euphrates that Moses is talking about here because what we're talking about here is is uh, anti antediluvian before the flood and you know the flood was a disastrous thing for the whole earth and it changed a lot so there's a, there's some conjecture some speculation um, the land of Havilah is said in some places to be the, doma- the, the domicile of Ishmael uh, in southwest Arabia and I put a question mark there I don't know for sure I think I got a Well, that's awful. Um, uh, I apologize. I, you can't read anything on that map because it's all fuzzy and out of focus, so we can't learn anything from that. We'll just jump on past it. The gold of that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stone are there. Uh, bdellium uh, is a, it's described as an odiferous, yellowish, transparent gum of South Arabia of a South Arabian tree and at elsewhere in the scripture we are told that um, the manna that fell in the wilderness had sort of the appearance of fidelium and so does that tell you well I don't know um, the onyx stone is a, a, a precious stone that can be cut and used for jewelry you've probably seen if you were around in the 50s and 60s you probably saw some onyx jewelry that was really popular then, and it's a certain type of um, of um, silica rock that um, is pretty pretty. It was really pretty when it's polished up, and that's all we'll say about that. And then we talked about Gihon. It says it flows around the whole land of Cush. Uh, many residents of modern-day Ethiopia identify this river as the Blue Nile or the Abbe River and so uh, you that is where you can see where Cush is on the uh, on the uh, slide up there and that's way over on to the uh, to the west side of the Red Sea and for that river to flow from I don't know how that worked how that could be the same river they're talking about and it was joined at some place with the Tigris and the Euphrates and, and, and it's way above my pay grade to say that. I looked at several different uh, uh, graphics trying to say where's the land of Eden and where were these rivers and there's I just have to say there's a lot of speculation as it might have been here and here's where we think it was and here's how we think those rivers ran and that's all well and good. I'm not going to show that. I didn't make any copies of it because uh, I, can't, uh, I can't vouch for it. So then the third river was the Tigris, and it flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. And then the Lord God took the man, and he put him in the garden. So the man was created outside the garden. The Lord created the garden, put all these things in it, took the man... Put him in the garden, watch over it, take care of it. He was there to do work, uh, to cultivate the garden, take care for it, and watch over it. And the Lord issued some commands. The command that the man, the Lord commanded the man, saying, "From any tree of the garden you may eat freely." That's part A. But 
From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from it, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, there's nothing vague in those words. Uh, Don't eat from that tree, and if you do, you're going to die. Uh, The tolokal, the the Hebrew word to not eat, uh, and... You've heard Mark talk about this before in his study in, uh, in the book of Joshua. Uh, there's a type of verb syntax that Hebrew uses that makes it certain. They use, they use a, a, a cal infinitive absolute and a cal imperfect together. And those two verbs together tell you it is certain. It's going to happen. Uh, it's characteristic of divine or royal threats in narrative and prophetic texts. And throughout uh, the, uh, the Old Testament, we see it. And the, the two verbs together, the, the infinitive reads muth. And the imperfect is ta-moth. And they sound a lot alike, and they're alike, and they look alike in appearance. They've just got a couple of different front ends on them. And that means it's going to happen for sure. It's going to be a certain thing. Remember that. It's a certain thing. Then the Lord God said in verse 18, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable. Hello? 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 It just died. All right, all right, all right. So for the first time in Genesis, the Lord has referred to something as being not good. Every, all the way through Genesis 1, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good. We get here to 2.18, and he, this is not good. Uh, that uh, man had no one to compliment him. And he says, I will make him a helper suitable for him. So a helper suitable... We heard Jack talking about this when he was teaching in, uh, I think it was First Peter or Second Peter 3, 8, or those in the Azer. Azer uh, is the helper and Kenigdo is suitable. And it's a compound phrase meaning uh, matching him or like opposite him uh, is, is what's considered here. And so then what happened? Well... Now we take a little diversion. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was his name. That gives the man ownership and dominion over all of those creatures. When you have the capability to name something, it's under your control. Uh, no doubt about it. And the man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. So, all the birds of the sky, every beast of the field, all the cattle. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. I would point out that this is the first time in Genesis 2.20 where the name for the man, Adam, was used. Before that, it was just referred to as the man. Use first time they call him a name, uh, formalize it. So how do he do that? So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall over the man, and he slept. And the Lord took one of his ribs, closed up the place, and then he took that rib, 
And he fashioned into a, room, into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, and he brought her to the man. So fashion, bana, is built, is the word that he used here. And it's used only here and in Amos 9.6 for the creative word of the Lord. We saw in Genesis 1 it was bara, a word that's used only of divine creation, never of something that humans built. Uh, here it is in reference to taking the rib and making it into something that it wasn't. So uh, I want to quote from uh, a, one of the commentaries I used by uh, Gordon Wenham. It's a commentary on Genesis, World Biblical Commentary. And he says in there, Just as the rib is found at the side of the man and is attached to him, even so the good wife, the rib of her husband, stands at his side to be his helper counterpart, and her soul is bound up with his. It's not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but, at, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, near his heart to be beloved. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Uh, now Paul, if you recall our, our study in... Uh, uh, in Ephesians, where we were looking at the household codes, particularly in relation to the to the husband and wife union in marriage, that uh, Paul in Ephesians 5:30 made an allusion uh, to these words uh, in his instructions to the uh, to the husband. Uh, not a quote, but an allusion to them. And now this slide is the New American Standard rendering of the Hebrew text. Uh, let me show you. So this one is a, is a wooden uh, literal translation from the Hebrew in the order that it would be reading there, read there. So it's not like we talk. Uh, it's like the Hebrew would be said. He said the man. Uh, you hear when, when Mark translates Hebrew, he always makes a point to make it here that the, the order of the Hebrew is, uh, is verb, subject, and then objects. And the verb first, he said... Then the subject, the man, this, I put is in parentheses because it's, it's, uh, this, is a verbless, this is a verbless clause, but you have to put the equative verb in there, the linking verb, to, to make it all make sense. This is now, at this time, bone from my bones and flesh from my flesh. This one shall be called woman, isha, I put in there. That's the Hebrew that's translated into woman. Because from man, ish, was taken this one. And that's the uh, wooden translation of the Hebrew. And yet what they, the translators of the Bible put this in, into poetry that um, they think Adam really said, and, and it reads like this in, in poetry. This one this time is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for from man was taken this one. Uh, we have here the, the first human poet. The first man is the first human poet. It's wonderful Hebrew poetry. Uh, and so there is, a, uh, it, is, it is chiastic uh, in, in structure. You can see uh, the beginning and the end. You have this one is the first one. You have this one is the last one. Uh, there is parallelism. Lines two and three are parallel with one another. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, parallelism. And lines five and six, this one shall be called woman from man 
this one was taken and wonderful poetry. I am so looking forward to when we have the, when Chafer finally gets the, the wherewithal and the capability to produce an advanced Hebrew course and we can get into Hebrew. I am looking forward to that. For this reason, because of all of that, man shall forsake his father and mother. That's a terrible word to use, forsake. Uh, but it, it, actually, it accurately captures what is the mandate here. Uh, you're raised up with your parents. Uh, you get married and uh, you forsake them. You leave them and you, different words, this New American Standard says joined. Uh, I think the King James says cleave. Uh, uh, the uh, commentary that I've been looking at, the, the, what they used in there was uh, stuck to his wife. And anyway, let's just be clear on a couple of things. You don't stop honoring your parents. I mean, that's a commandment that's, that's left over uh, from, we're not under the, the Mosaic law today, but the Ten Commandments are still valid and, and chief among those. The first one that has to do with our interpersonal human relationships is honor your father and your mother. That never stops. That never goes away. As long as they're breathing the air that we have, uh, you honor your parents. And when they're gone, you honor their memory. So that's not gone away. You don't, you don't get it. But as far as a household, you're out of that one and it's you and your wife or wives, it's you and your husband. And you become one flesh. It's one thing. Uh, now Paul quoted this, Genesis 2.24, again back to Ephesians 5 and 5.31. Uh, he quoted that. Um, as he was explaining the mystery relationship between husband and wife in a marriage, it is a Christian marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. A believer's relationship is a picture of the relationship between God and us. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. So, uh, one flesh. And then Genesis 2.25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Wow, why do we put that in there? Uh, well, because it was true. Man was, man was in total innocence as a child at this juncture, and so was his newly created wife. The verse in closing this scene uh, in the garden, it does create a parallel with 321, which we'll get to shortly. Uh, it's also quite out of keeping with the usual attitude toward nakedness in the time in which we're talking. Now, where are we talking? 1446 to 1406. We have the whole Mosaic Law and all the and all the restrictions in there about exposing nakedness. You don't do this. You don't do that. You keep it covered. You prevent it. And uh, so this is really quite out of character. That wow, this couple were uh, without clothing and they were not ashamed. Why is that? Because they were innocent. We didn't have any sin yet. So that takes us through Genesis 2 and the treatise on the creation of man, establishment of them in the Garden of Eden with a wife created out of his body.
and then we move to chapter 3. And uh, this is going to be a total change as we go along here. Now, the serpent was more shrewd than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and he made him. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Now, we heard Loring talking this morning about the angelic conflict and all the different names Satan had. And, and uh, we learn as we get more material that the serpent referred to in Genesis 3.1 is Satan, the devil. Um, they didn't know that then. This is the information they got the serpent. You had this beast made by God and it could talk and the woman could obviously understand what that uh, beast was saying and she could communicate with it. And uh, it seems that in noting the snake's shrewdness that Moses is hinting that his remarks should be examined very carefully. Maybe we ought to take a really shrewd listen to what he's saying. He may not be saying what he seems to be saying. Perhaps we shouldn't take his words at face value as the woman did. That's a quote again from Wenham's Genesis commentary. So she responds, the woman. The woman said to the serpent, from the trees, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. Continue in verse 3, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it. Or you will die. Now she's taking some liberty with what we recall God saying. Because he didn't add that part in there about not touching it. He says don't eat from it. Satan doesn't comment on that. He disregards it. But what's he do? He says nah. You will surely not die. So now. Remember what I said earlier. When I, I talked about the. The. Uh, uh, the uh, paradigmatic uh, verb construction where you've got a, a, an infinitive absolute and an imperfect uh, together. It means certainty that the thing's going to happen. Well, in this, the serpent has used that construction of the verbs with a, neg with a negative in front of it. Said, no, it certainly isn't going to happen. So directly contradicting God. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Hmm. I think Loring talked about being deceived this morning. So the woman's definitely been deceived. Then when the woman saw that the tree was... Now listen to what all is going on here. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and she saw that it was a delight to the eyes, and she saw that it was desirable to make one wise, comma... She took from the fruit, she ate, she gave to her husband, and he ate. Boom! A catastrophic change in the whole makeup of creation has just happened. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And then they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the... How do you do that? How do you hide from God? I don't think that's possible. But anyway, uh, if you're going to go prompt stupid, I guess you can think you can get away from him here. And uh, the Lord... The Lord calls out to the man and said to him, Where are you? He knew. And the man says... I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked so I hid myself. And he, God, said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Yes. And now we start the big blame game. So the man's going to blame God. He says, the woman whom you gave to me. So God, it's your fault. You gave me this woman. She gave me from the tree and I ate. God didn't blink an eye. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent. He deceived me, and I ate. So we're passing the blame game down. Poor snake. You're going to get it here. Then the Lord said to the serpent, because, of, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. So I don't know what the what the uh, situation of serpents was before this happened. But we know how snakes slither around and, uh, and all that stuff in the dirt, and some of them get up in trees and wrap themselves around the, the vines and the, and the trunks and all that stuff. But they slither and, and, and do that, and, and they're just generally creepy. And uh, uh, everybody, well, not everybody hates them, but uh, most people... Or have some uh, some sense of uh, of ill will towards snakes. And then he said, "I will put enmity between you and the woman, you snake and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he, her seed, shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel." So uh, we have here what is referred to as the proto-evangelium, the initial statement in Scripture of a way of rescue, a way out uh, for fallen humans uh, in this statement where God says, I'm going to put in between you, the snake, which we now know is Satan, and the woman between your seed and her seed, he, her seed, will bruise you on the head. That's going to be a fatal wound. You shall bruise him on the heel, not fatal. To the woman, 
To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So what all is going on here? Well, uh, I don't have any sense of it, having not born children myself. I, had have, I have had some awesome kidney stones. And uh, they, uh, they hurt a lot, but they tell me that's the closest I'll ever come to knowing childbirth, and so I don't want to know anything more about childbirth. Um, but in pain, a lot of pain in childbirth, and that is as a result. I don't, know what, I don't know how it was set up before the fall. We never got to that point in creation where uh, there was procreation prior to, the, prior to the sin coming into the world. So when it does, it is with bringing children in with great pain. So your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over. What's that mean? That means uh, that your desire, woman, is to, um, uh, is to rule over your husband, uh, to usurp his authority. Uh, and he will rule over you. He is the superior uh, in, the, in the authority chain there in the marriage relationship. But a man in his sinful nature and working in that area is not fulfilling that responsibility in accordance with the words communicated in the book of Ephesians. But no, being the tyrant that he is, uh, he is a lording it over his wife and possibly abusive and all sorts of bad things. So it's a wreck. The, uh, the marriage relationship is, uh, is severely damaged. He gets to Adam. So we've dealt with the snake. We've dealt with the woman. Now we come to the man. To Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife... <clears throat> And have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. So where it, the ground was pliant and producing and the plants grew and they were easily cultivated and everything was wonderful and now it's a wreck. The ground, the virtual ground, and everything that it produces has been cursed because of what you did, Adam. He didn't curse Adam, but he cursed the ground because of it. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. He goes on to say, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. Till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, uh, well, what happened to the death? God had said, in the day you eat from it, you will surely die. Um, they're still up vertical, walking and talking, so what's that mean? Well, uh, one thing is it means... It means physical death, which is going to happen. And we see, as we read later on, that Moses, Moses, that Adam and everybody else dies at a certain point in time. So physical death was a reality now because of that. And the other was, they're now separated. They are spiritually dead at that moment instantaneously, and that's a fact. Uh, so that was the death that resulted from the willful act of sin. It was... 
It was deliberate on Adam's part. He can't say that anybody deceived him. His wife just said, honey, this is good. Why don't you try it? And he made a decision and he did it. She was deceived. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. So in this, um, uh, in this verse, man called his wife's name Eve. Eve, uh, the Hebrew for Eve is Hava, because she was the mother of all the living, Haya. So two Hebrew words, so you have some poetic rhyming there uh, with uh, a different uh, consonant in the middle. Hava for Eve, Haya for living. Eve, because she is the mother of all the living. And then we have in verse, in chapter 3, verse 21, the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And this caps off what we read in 2.25. They were both naked and unashamed, and now they have garments of skin uh, and they are clothed, and those were made by the Lord. Uh, garments of skin, so what else does that imply or flat out state? Some animal or animals had to die to give up their skin uh, to be used to make the clothing that the Lord made. So we have the first indication of any death of any animals in, uh, in this verse right here. Now the Lord has to take some precautions here. Now he says, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us us here being uh, God and the angelic hosts, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Can't let that happen at this juncture. So therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. Took him out of the Garden of Eden, literally, he drove the man out. He drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So it would be suicide for the man to try to get back into the garden to be able to eat from the tree of life. The angel with the flaming sword would kill him and anybody else that tried to get in there, and so they would not be able to. And uh, that pretty much takes care of, of Eden. There's no human interaction with Eden uh, from that point on ever. And as I said earlier, we don't know where it was. And I suspect that's by design. Uh, it tends to be one of those places that were we to be able to know where it was, we would probably want to go there and put up some shrines and, and worship, maybe make some idols and, and do that. So uh, we can't do that. That's a blessing. Now we jump into chapter 4. Uh, if I whiz bang through here, we can make it most of the way through. Now, the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. We'll keep going. And again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of flocks, little woolly critters, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Nothing wrong with that, but it's how you do it. It's what you do with it. 
So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought some produce of the land as an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Just some. Just grab some. I got some extra tomatoes here. Uh, there's too many. They're ripening up too fast. I got to get rid of them. We'll give them to God. And uh, Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel for his offering. Now, this is going to mean something, again, to the audience that's getting this, the Hebrews, because they're all into sacrifices and what needs to be uh, for a sacrifice to be acceptable by God. So they can, they can see this and they can understand it. God wants the best. He doesn't want the leftover stuff. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Good question. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? And then we get to Genesis 4 verse 7 is probably the most obscure verse in Genesis as said by one commentator. What does it mean? Is there not forgiveness if you do well and if you do not do well sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you but you must master it. There's just all kinds of problems with the way this thing is put together and uh, it, uh, the total analysis is above my pray grade. Uh, but I will say this, there, you, don't have, you don't have subject verb agreement in there. You've got, uh, you've got feminine and masculine mixed and, and that doesn't work. So there's some problems with the way this is written. Uh, one commentator said, maybe it's better said, is there not forgiveness for sin if you do well? If you do not do well, the croucher. This is a demon is at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. I don't know. You'd have to change some of the wording for that to happen. That's a problem verse. Uh, what it is, is there is forgiveness. There are problems if you don't do well and you've got to watch out. Uh, and uh, I'll just, more, more work needs to be done for a full understanding of Genesis 4-7. So we'll move on. So Cain told his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. So we know about that. And again, the Lord asked questions. He knew exactly what happened and what happened to Abel and where was he, but the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he, God, said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed. You are cursed. Now he didn't curse Adam. He cursed the ground. And now he is cursing Cain. You are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your, brother, your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer... Yield its strength to you, and you will be a vagrant and a wanderer on earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me from the land. Therefore, behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground and from your face, and I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And so the Lord says to him, Whoever kills Cain... Vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold, and the Lord appointed a sign for Cain that no one finding him would slay him. And so 
We know the rest of the story. I just Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land east of uh, of Nod, east of Eden. And then the rest of chapter four goes into uh, basically the the uh, the offspring. Uh, Cain uh, had a wife. Where'd she come from? Well, somewhere it came from Adam and Eve. So it was one of his sisters. And he had children from his wife, and it goes into the, what happened with the children, and you get to some really arrogant ones. You get to Lamech, who said uh, uh, Cain was, vengeance, uh, vengeance was taken on whoever harmed Cain sevenfold, but on Lamech it will be 70 times seven. And, uh, and then at the end of chapter four, it says, and then men began to, began to call on the name of the Lord. So... Uh, I will uh, zip out of there at this juncture and we'll jump down here. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold, and then we get into the last part here, the last two verses. Adam, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. And she said, "For God has appointed me another offspring in the place of Abel, for Cain killed him." And to Seth, to him also was born a son, and he named his name Enosh. And then men began to call on the name of the Lord. So some takeaways for where we are now. I, I, and I gave some of these last week. So there, recall there are four major events in Genesis 1 through 11. Creation and the fall. We've seen those two events, the first two events now. The next two, the last two, are the flood and the Tower of Babel. And we'll take a poke at those next week. Uh, God created everything on day one. Created everything from nothing. There was nothing it wasn't there was nothing and it exploded. There was nothing and God created something by his spoken word. God the creator, absolutely, totally separate from and distinct from all creation, but he's able to communicate. And we've seen that. He could talk to the man. He could talk to the animals. He could make the animals talk to the men. Man was created in God's likeness and image to have dominion over the earth and all creation. And we messed that up. The first man, Adam, was created from the dust of the ground. The first woman, Eve, Hava, was made from the first man's rib. All subsequent procreation from that, every birth has come out of the body of the woman. Both Adam and Eve were created in innocence. The Garden of Eden was created a perfect environment, and we've seen a perfect environment. And we're going to have another instance of that when we get to the, uh, the Millennial Kingdom. We're going to have a perfect environment, and it's going to mess that up too. And this last point, man's original sin was a catastrophic event affecting all of creation. Think about that for a minute. What all happened that was verbalized in Genesis 3 as far as the relationship between Adam and his wife and the creatures and their ground. But 
look at everything else. What before the fall of man, all the animals got along well together. They all were they all were herbivores. Um, and now we've got some really nasty carnivores that will eat you up uh, if they catch you in the woods. Uh, and and all of that happened as a result of the fall. The the degradation of our bodies virtually from the instant we are born until we get to the final end and it's uh, to the point where, okay, it's time to put this one away and, uh, and go on to the next life. It's all a degradation that's happening. All of the disease uh, that we suffer and some horrible, unthinkable diseases are all a result of the fall. Uh, the genetic mutations that result in some terrible things happening to people sometimes when they're born and awful birth defects a result of the fall. Uh, the nature that man has. Uh, Jeremiah says, the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? How did it get to that point? It wasn't created that way in the garden. It happened as a result of the fall. So we can be really nasty, nasty creatures to one another. In fact, I would submit to you that the two most awful things that have happened in all of creation, and it's not the bombing of Japan at the end of World War II, doesn't rank up there. It, the two most awful things that have happened in all creation, one is the original sin of man which brought all this upon us. And the second is the flood which destroyed everything living on planet Earth that is an air breather except for Noah and his three sons and all their wives. So uh, let's take these things and think about them. And, and uh, next week, if... Uh, if uh, God willing, we will try to get through. Um, that's a tall order. Uh, the uh, wow. The flood and the tower. Of ba- I will. I will work. To, I'll make it a goal to get through the to get through the flood next week when we get together, uh, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we love you and we thank you for this time we've had together today, Father, and and the things that are spoken. Uh, from the truth of your word, uh, please help us to uh, to understand these things. Uh, have your spirit make them real to us and help us understand what they are so that we can apply and, and grow, Father. And we ask your blessing now upon our time together, and we thank you for that, and we pray for safety as we go about our business today. In Jesus' name, amen. Justin.